I would encourage you this morning to take your Bibles and turn to 2 Peter chapter 1. As we continue our verse-by-verse study of this epistle, this morning we find ourselves in verses 5 through 11. Follow along as I read, beginning in verse 5. Now, for this very reason also, applying all diligence in your faith, supply moral excellence, and in your moral excellence, knowledge, and in your knowledge, self-control, and in your self-control, perseverance, and in your perseverance, godliness, and in your godliness, brotherly kindness, and in your brotherly kindness, love. For if these qualities are yours and are increasing, they render you neither useless nor unfruitful in the true knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. For he who lacks these qualities is blind or short-sighted, having forgotten his purification from his former sins. Therefore, brethren... Be all the more diligent to make certain about his calling and choosing you. For as long as you practice these things, you will never stumble. For in this way, the entrance into the eternal kingdom of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, will be abundantly supplied to you. In John Bunyan's great allegory, Pilgrim's Progress, We read many stories, but one that is especially striking, certainly in light of this text, is the one where Christian and his friend Hopeful, on their way to the celestial city, discovered that the road that they were traveling was a little bit difficult, a little bit too tough. Discouragement began to set in and They found themselves despairing in certain ways and maybe doubting the goodness of God. And as they walked along the narrow way, they looked over to the side on the left and they saw a very pleasant looking meadow that ran alongside the road. And it appeared to run parallel to the road that they were on. But certainly it looked much easier than the way they were traveling and it was called Bypath Meadow. So they decided to get over into the meadow and go along another way. As they were traveling along, they looked ahead of them and they saw another man going the same way. And his name was Vain Confidence. They struck up a conversation with this man and they began to follow him. But as they traveled along their way, the day grew into evening and the evening into the darkness of night. And suddenly they heard a sound and vain confidence fell off into a pit and there he died. It was at that point that they became aware that they had gotten off of the right road onto the wrong road and they were following a man that they should not have been following. They had gone astray because of their desire to seek an easier way. And they became afraid. So as the allegory goes, they fell asleep in 
this great meadow and they didn't realize that they were sleeping in the land, an area that was owned by a man named Giant Despair. And actually they were sleeping near his house, a place called Doubting Castle. Well, that morning the giant got up for his rounds and he was walking along his grounds and he spotted Christian and Hopeful and he seized them and he threw them into a foul, stinking, dark dungeon. There was no water, no food, and there they began to languish in their despair and in their misery and in their doubting of their salvation. Giant Despair had a wife and her name was Distrust. And she demanded that Giant Despair go and beat them without mercy and ridicule them and insult them, which he did. And then he would leave them to mourn over his wicked words, reminding them of all of their sin, all of their transgressions, and making them feel even more miserable than they were. He left them a knife and a rope and some poison and told them, choose how to end your life. Why live in such misery? Why live in such pain, such remorse, such bitterness? Well, Hopeful lived up to his name and he constantly tried to give his friend Christian encouragement because Christian became suicidal. Hopeful reminded him of all of the ways that God had been faithful to him in the past. Now, as the story goes, they were thrown into this dungeon on Wednesday, and by now it is Saturday night, and they are on the brink of death, especially Christian. Doubt and discouragement was now so severe that there was no reason really to go on living. And suddenly, as Bunyan tells us, and I quote, On Saturday at about midnight, the pilgrims began to pray and continued in prayer until almost daybreak. Then Christian, a short time before daylight, became astounded and passionately exclaimed, What a fool I am! Here I lie in a stinking dungeon when I could be walking in complete liberty. I have a key in my pocket called promise that I am sure will open any lock in Doubting Castle. And as the story goes, he took the key, unlocked the gates, and escaped from Doubting Castle and giant despair and got back on the narrow road of difficulty the difficult road they had once abandoned, the road that led to life eternal. And there in the midst of their difficulties, as the story continues to go, they found great solace and great comfort and great encouragement and great assurance of their salvation and the goodness of God. What a picture of believers. How often we tend to doubt the goodness of God. And I would ask you, have you ever doubted your salvation? Maybe some of you within the sound of my voice are struggling with that even right now. 
Some struggle with a lack of assurance. And if that is you, your life is one that is filled with defeat and discouragement and sometimes despair. As you look at your life, you see it as basically a vine that is not bearing any fruit. You really do not enjoy the fruits of the Spirit. Love and joy, peace, patience, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Those things seem to be missing for you. And instead, as you look at your life honestly, you see that you're filled many times with anger, with bitterness. You're sour and you're sullen. Many times feeling defeated. And along with all of that, on top of it all, you begin to doubt your salvation. Friends, it doesn't have to be this way if you truly know Christ. You can have assurance of salvation. And Scripture is filled with many passages that help us understand that. I'll not take time to go into many of them. I'll give you one and then we will look at the text before us. But certainly in 1 John, we have many different tests that help us understand the marks of true Christianity. We must have a proper belief in the gospel and Jesus Christ. We must be people that are committed to obedient living. We must be people that love God and love fellow believers. In fact, in 1 John 5.13, he says, These things I have written to you who believe in the name of the Son of God, in order that you may know that you have eternal life. There are many passages that delineate the wonderful truths of salvation that give us reassurance that indeed we know the Lord and the promises of God. And this morning you want to ask yourself the question, what grounds do I really have for my faith, for my profession of faith? And are those grounds indeed legitimate? And if so, what do I need to do in my Christian walk that will give me a profound assurance of my salvation. This is what we will discover this morning in this passage in 2 Peter chapter 1, verses 5-11. through 11. And unfortunately, many Christians find themselves in Doubting Castle, doubting their salvation. But this was not what Peter wanted for the first century saints that were being persecuted. You will recall that the persecution is escalating now. This is a period probably just months before his own crucifixion. And he wanted to remind them, first of all, of the nature of their salvation, as we learned last week, the very essence of the gospel in verses 1 through 4. And he wanted now to contrast the true message of the gospel as well as the character of true Christians with that of the false message and the deceptive character of the charlatans that he would expose in chapters 2 and 3. But here he focuses on the issue now of experiencing the assurance of salvation come what may. Now let me give you a few preliminary thoughts before we examine the text closely. Some people should doubt their salvation because, in fact, they do not know Christ. They're merely a tear amongst the wheat. They have professed Christ, but they do not possess him. You will know this because you will not really have a legitimate love for Christ. You will not have a desire to give God glory in your life. 
You will have no commitment to the Lordship of Christ. In other words, you will not be willing to really serve Him and be obedient to Him, come what may. There will be no real love for God, no real separation from sin, no real repentance from sin, no genuine humility, no real devotion to God and His glory, but your life will center solely around yourself, even though you may play the Christian game from time to time. There's really been no transformation. You find that you are really unable to restrain the flesh because indeed you do not have the Spirit of God living within you. You will have no appetite for the Word of God, no desire to be separate from the world. You will not see any spiritual growth in your life. Just a superficial attachment to some religious ideals. Maybe you've joined some church, maybe this church. You're a part of some denomination. But... The reality is you really don't know Christ and you doubt your salvation and rightly so. And I pray that that doubt will turn to absolute despair so that you will repent and be saved. But many other people are truly born again and they still doubt. There's various reasons why. Let me give you six categories of Christians very quickly. And you might find yourself in one of these categories. Categories of Christians that indeed doubt their salvation when they should not. First, there's the carnal Christian. This is the Christian that indulges the appetites of the flesh. They walk according to the flesh, not according to the spirit of Galatians 5. And this is really a kind of a continuum from people that are mildly fleshly, we might say, to severely fleshly. Their character is marked by life-dominating life sins that they refuse to mortify. Their life is filled with willful, habitual disobedience that ignites their conscience. The Spirit of God is grieved within them. The Holy Spirit is quenched and they begin to doubt their salvation. They look around and they say, you know what, in reality, if I'm honest with myself, I'm really no different than people that don't know Christ. They are reaping what they have sown Many times they live under divine chastening and they're forfeiting blessing in their life. They look at their finances and everything's a mess. They're not a good steward of their money. They'll look at their relationships with their family and they'll see that that's a disaster as well. They're selfish and so on. And because of their sinfulness, whatever it may be, they begin to doubt their salvation. Then there's the badgered Christian. The badgered Christian is the one that is constantly hammered by confrontive teaching on the law and on sin without a proper balance of grace and forgiveness and righteousness. For these people, Christianity becomes an ever-increasing list of don'ts. And relentless confrontation concerning their violation of God's law and perhaps even legalistic rules that have been canonized in their particular group causes them to feel an overwhelming sense of guilt and many times begin to doubt their salvation. As you know, I love to read the Puritans. I find them inspiring and find that God has had gifted them in a, in a profound way theologically in most areas. But if you read the Puritans long enough, you will feel like you're not saved because they are so committed to godly living and you have to have a balance there 
of the doctrine of grace and God's mercy and his forgiveness. Too much confrontation can beat people down and they will begin to lose the assurance of their salvation. Then there's the tender Christian. This is many times an immature Christian. Maybe they've been saved for years, but they've never really been confronted with the truths of righteous living. It's been one of these things where you just kind of come to Christ and then you basically live any way you want. And then suddenly they are exposed to righteous standards. They're exposed to what God really would have them do in their life. And they're they're overwhelmed with it. And there's legitimate conviction. But sometimes they are so overwhelmed that they will begin to doubt their salvation. So lessons in grace are crucial for these folks. Then there's the paranoid Christian. This is the type of Christian that when they experience any kind of a trial or any kind of difficulty or even some particular sin, it becomes for them a proof that God has abandoned them. No real understanding of the purpose of trials. They really do not have a grasp of grace. They do not understand that trials and tribulations are inevitable. They don't understand the battle between the flesh and the spirit and so on. And so they really don't know how to gain victory over them. They do not have a handle on how all things can work together for good to them that love God and are called according to his purposes. And frankly, they will have a very shallow view of sin. All they will see is the tip of the iceberg because in reality, our being is just continually filled with sin. And so therefore, they will have a shallow understanding of grace. So the paranoid Christian will also doubt their salvation. And then there's the can't remember Christian. This is the Christian that can't remember when they were saved. They can't remember a specific date. They can't remember a time when they walked an aisle or signed a card or raised a hand or had some event in their life that they can anchor their salvation to. And for these people, they fail to understand that genuine saving faith is not validated by some past event, but by present fruit in your life. And so these people will also doubt at times their salvation. And finally, and perhaps the most difficult that I've found to deal with, would be what I would call the dutiful, and you might even add the word deceived Christian. This is the Christian that is really a victim of erroneous teachings about the gospel, especially the doctrines of grace and depravity, doctrines of soteriology, the doctrine of salvation. You see this especially in what is called Arminianism. For these people, they have been convinced, unfortunately, that salvation is initiated by man's free will, not by God's grace. And therefore, a Christian can also choose later on to deny their salvation, to deny God and lose their salvation. For them, they believe that maybe God's grace is sufficient enough to save me, but it's up to me to stay that way. They would believe that salvation requires an ongoing, continual exercise of our free will to cooperate with God in order to stay saved. And as a result, the Christian life becomes kind of a duty, not something that you do out of desire Therefore, every season of sinfulness in their life energizes a sense of doubt. I've counseled many 
who believe that they must constantly be seeking forgiveness, not for the sake of enjoying fellowship and blessing from the Lord, but in order to maintain their salvation. For many, they would believe that God forgave all of their sins up to that day that they were saved. But from there on out, you're going to have to constantly be seeking more and more forgiveness in order to stay saved. One prominent Arminian theologian and leader that I spoke with said, and I quote, no Christian can have full assurance of salvation. We won't ultimately know we were saved until we get to heaven. That's a tragic thing. My friend, Satan is a master counterfeiter of the truth. And he attacks Christians with false doctrine, with the double-edged sword of doubt and discouragement. And therefore, the Apostle Paul tells us, for example, in 1 Thessalonians 5.8, we must put on the breastplate of faith and love and as a helmet, the hope of salvation. And in Ephesians 6, verse 11, put on the full armor of God that you may be able to stand firm against the schemes of the devil. And later on, he says, take the helmet of salvation. In other words, know the truth of your salvation, especially the truth regarding to God's grace, that your salvation is of grace from beginning to end and all in the middle. Nothing can take away your salvation. And you cannot lose or rescind what God has ordained and given to you. Well, perhaps you find yourself in one of these categories, and I pray that the Spirit of God will reveal truth to you this morning, because He does not want you to struggle with a sense of assurance when, in fact, you truly know Him. And here this morning, we see in verses 5 through 11, that Peter assumes that his, re- his readers, first of all, have received a faith of the same kind as ours, verse 1. In other words, he's assuming that his readers are true believers. And as we look at the text before us, we see that nowhere in the text does he admonish people to earn their salvation, nor does he warn them about losing it. But rather, he addresses the issue of assurance, and I'll give you three categories to help you understand it this morning. We will, first of all, see the commitment required. Secondly, the character revealed. And thirdly, the consequence rewarded. And all of this contributes to Peter's dominant theme and the passion of this whole passage. And that's in verse 10, to make certain about his calling and choosing you. For as long as you practice these things, you will never stumble. So first of all, let's examine the commitment required. We see this in the list of virtues in verses 5 through 7. Virtues that should characterize our life and thus give us assurance of salvation. Again, not to gain salvation, but assure us of it. But first of all, notice this commitment that we see at the beginning of verse 5. Now, for this very reason also, applying all diligence in your faith, supply, and then the list begins. Well, what's he referring to here? For, for what very reason also? Well, the answer is found back in verse 2. It's the knowledge of God and Jesus our Lord. And also in verse 3, all that he has granted to us, everything pertaining to life and godliness. And also in verse 4, for the reason of his precious and magnificent promises. In other words, friends, because of all that God has lavished upon us in our salvation... 
those of us who truly know and love, love the Lord Jesus Christ, who are committed to these virtues, will have assurance of salvation. Now notice the phrase, applying all diligence. In the original language, it refers to having a passionate zeal for something. And I might add that this is our role in that process of sanctification. The word applying is a term in the original language that means to bring alongside of or parallel of something or parallel to something. And here's what he's saying, that in essence, after our new birth, we are to bring into our relationship with God. We are to bring something parallel or alongside to that which he has provided. And what is it? Well, it's going to be a diligent, determined, passionate zeal to strive to manifest the virtues that he describes. Now, you must understand that while our salvation is all of God, all of grace, we are not to be some passive bystander in the process of sanctification. There must be a determined effort on our part as well. In Philippians 2.13, we read that we are to work out our salvation with fear and trembling. For it is God who is at work in you. There's God's part both to will and to work for his good pleasure. So there we see the tension here between man's responsibility and God's sovereignty, even in the process of sanctification. Similarly, Paul encouraged the Corinthians in 2 Corinthians 8, 7 about this decisive, determined commitment that we need to have. He says that they are to abound in everything in faith and utterance and knowledge and in all earnestness and in the love we inspired in you, see that you abound in this gracious work also, referring to financial giving. So Peter is saying, folks, you need to come alongside, you need to come parallel with what God has provided for you in your salvation and give yourself completely and with utmost passion and enthusiasm to these godly virtues. Now, I might add, folks, that this is the opposite of casual churchianity. You know, the country club Christian. The type of Christian that is basically a Sunday morning Christian only. They kind of learn the lingo, they can sing a few hymns, and they hold to a few pet doctrines, but they really never make their faith and righteous living a priority in their life. All sizzle and no steak. Their names on the membership role, but as a person, they'll not be found in service to the Lord in the church. Church membership is kind of like owning exercise equipment, but never using it. Until two months before your high school reunion. And then suddenly you learn the meaning of applying something with all diligence. Suddenly you have a new priority. But folks, if you lack assurance of your faith, you will probably see yourself in this category. Beloved, following Christ, and I really want you to hear this, it requires a, a disciplined, lifelong commitment. The, the, we're not in a sprint, we're in a marathon here. And you've got to pace yourself, but you have to commit yourself. And by the power of the Holy Spirit, we are to strive to become more and more like Christ as we commit ourselves to these virtues that we are about to look at. 
You, you don't want to look for a shortcut. You know, we, we, people are always looking for shortcuts. I mean, I, I mean, you see all these diet pills, for example. I mean, quite frankly, if you want to lose weight, it's real simple. Eat less, exercise more. But people don't want to do that. They want a shortcut. Give me a pill. And likewise, in the Christian life, I think that's what many times people want. Give me some quick fix. There is no quick fix. It requires diligent effort. And remember that Peter has already told us that we have all of the resources we need. He's granted to us everything pertaining to life and godliness. In other words, we've been fully supplied for our journey. We have all the provisions we need. Now, what we must do is take hold of those provisions and exert ourselves in making full use of them. So again, notice, he says, applying all diligence. And then he says, in your faith, supply. Now, allow me to get technical for a moment, and it'll make sense to you in a minute. Because this is a fascinating thought. The word supply in the original language is epikorageo. And it means to lavishly provide above and beyond what is expected. And it was used originally to describe a choir master outfitting or securing provisions for his chorus. Now, let me explain this. In ancient Greeks, they were notorious for very perverted licentious types of theatrical productions, and some of them weren't as bad as others. They had their own version of Hollywood, and they would put on magnificent musical and theatrical productions, many times in association with religious celebrations. They would have plays. This was their form of entertainment. They didn't have televisions. They had this instead. And the choragos, which is the noun of the verb epikorageo, the Korogos was the leader of the choir. He was the choir master, and he was responsible for soliciting and collecting funds to supply the chorus, to help pay for all of the actors and the stagehands and, and so on, with all they would need to produce these extravagant performances. So, Peter's point is simply this. Yes, Christ has provided all that we need in our sanctification, but we have a responsibility here. We must pursue the character traits that bring honor to him. And in your faith, therefore, supply, like the choir master, all of these virtues. That we must abound, shall we say, in all that is needed to exalt the Lord Jesus Christ in this noble performance of Christian living. Lavishly supply godly living to what God has given us. And folks, it's crucial if we expect to avoid being, as he says in verse 8, useless and unfruitful. And ultimately, to make certain about his calling and choosing you in verse 10, you must do this. You must do this if you're going to have assurance of salvation. So that's the commitment required for assurance. But secondly, notice the character revealed. And here we have the list of virtues that we are to pursue. And I might hasten to add that this list will be in stark contrast to what he will later describe with respect to false teachers in chapters 2 and 3. 
And again, I would ask you to ask yourself, am I diligently determined with a passionate zeal to strive to manifest these qualities in my life as we look at them? Are these really passionate priorities for you? And if the answer is no, then if you're honest with yourself, you're going to struggle with the assurance of salvation. Now, notice the list beginning in the middle there of verse 5. In your faith supply moral excellence. This is a fascinating term. It's rather hard to translate in English. It has the idea of virtue or moral energy. One Greek scholar that I read said this regarding moral excellence, and I quote, In classical times, the word meant the God-given power or ability to perform heroic deeds, whether military, athletic, or artistic accomplishments, or the conducting of one's life. This ability needed to be demonstrated again in each situation that presents a challenge, end quote. So the idea here is really one of manifesting the excellence of the divine nature that we have been given in our salvation, made available through Christ, that Peter has already spoken of. You see, folks, we glorify God most when we manifest the character of Christ, when we are Christ-like. And so he's saying, in your faith, I want you to supply this moral excellence. And then later in verse 5, and in your moral excellence, supply knowledge. And this is a reference to true wisdom of the knowledge of God that is revealed in Scripture. In other, in other words, folks, to put it very simply, get serious about Bible study. Learn the Word of God. Learn the glorious doctrines that He has given us. Now, in contrast with unbelievers, you will see that we can have knowledge that God gives us Whereas they are filled with blindness to the truth, they walk in the futility of their mind. And friends, I might add, too, that you will never be able to pursue moral excellence without knowledge of the Word of God. In fact, earlier in 1 Peter 2, 2, he tells us that as Christians we need to long for the milk of the Word, like a newborn baby, like a newborn infant, that we might grow with respect to salvation. In other words, it's a matter of life or death, spiritually speaking. In Proverbs 2, you will recall, there's that wonderful passage that speaks of the importance of, of receiving His commandments and inclining our hearts to understanding. And he says, that we should cry for discernment. And in verses 5 and 6, he says, Then you will discern the fear of the Lord and discover the knowledge of God. For the Lord gives wisdom. From His mouth come knowledge and understanding. Paul spoke of the knowledge of the truth in Titus 1.1. This is the key to having spiritual discernment. And it's crucial when combating the clever schemes of Satan. And all of his counterfeits, especially with respect to the counterfeit truths that you hear from false teachers. And sadly, many Christians have what you might call a case of spiritual AIDS. They really have no immune system against false doctrine. You can turn on the television and you will see it over and over again. Lots of emotion, lots of hand-waving. Lots of carrying on, but not real worship in spirit and in truth. 
where the emotions, the subjective, the spirit is regulated by the objective truth of the Word of God. And for these people, Satan preys upon them very easily. As 1 Peter 6, 8 says, the adversary, the devil, prowls about like a roaring lion seeking someone to devour. Friends, if you are doctrinally, theologically ignorant or deceived, you will not have discernment. And you will, moreover, not bear fruit. You will be like a vine that is starving for nutrients. Moreover, you will struggle significantly with the assurance of your salvation. Always searching for another experience, for another guru. Never able to come to the knowledge of the truth. In fact, the role of the pastor teacher, Paul tells us in Ephesians 4 and verse 12, is to equip the saints for the work of service to the building up of the body of Christ until we attain to the unity of the faith. A reference to doctrinal objective unity and of the knowledge of the Son of God. And then in verse 14, he goes on to say, as a result... We are no longer to be children tossed here and there by waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine, by the trickery of men, by craftiness and deceitful scheming. Now, is this a priority for you? That in your moral excellence, you add knowledge. In verse 6, and in your knowledge, he goes on with yet another virtue, self-control. And certainly this is the inevitable Fruit of divine knowledge, self-control. It literally, in the original language, has the idea of holding yourself in. Barclay says, and I quote, it means to take a grip of oneself. You might say that it's the opposite of self-indulgence, which will always be the hallmark of false teachers. And we will see more of that later. As you look at the false teacher, as you look at the charlatan, You will not see a commitment to moral excellence, to knowledge, knowing the word of God, nor to self-control or any of the other virtues that we will examine, but only selfishness and self-indulgence. As you look at their lifestyles, you will see opulent lifestyles, ostentatious churches and 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 sanctuaries. they're, They're flamboyant in the way they conduct themselves, materialistic lovers of of luxury and pleasure and power. And they will preach a gospel of self-indulgence. Come to Jesus to get what is really yours so that you can prosper and be successful and so on. Not the gospel of self-denial. Charlatans will be enslaved to their lusts. They will be in bondage to their flesh and they will live by the mantra of our culture, our hedonistic culture, which is simply, if it feels good, do it. Versus if it dishonors God, don't even consider it. Beloved, remember, there's a way that seems right to a man, but the end is what? It's death. And often, the way that God would have us go seems wrong at first to our flesh. It's like, no, no, our flesh says go this way, and God is saying, no, I want you to go this way. And yet when we pursue the right way, even though sometimes it might feel wrong, the ultimate end is life, not death. 
There is pleasure in sin for how long? For a season. And I might hasten to add, there is displeasure many times in godliness, but only for a season. Many times to do the things that God would have us do requires suffering and self-sacrifice. But again, I ask the question, is the pursuit of self-control a priority for you? Are you supplying this diligently to your faith? And yet another virtue will bloom on the vine that produces moral excellence and knowledge. And in your self-control, he speaks of perseverance. I was fascinated to read one commentator on this issue, a man by the name of Bob Diffenbaugh. He summarized the logical progression of what we've looked at so far. Here's what he says, quote, faith brings us into relationship with God through Jesus Christ. Moral excellence seeks the character of God as the standard and goal for our own character. Knowledge describes what God is like and what we should be like as well. Self-control enables us to curb our physical passions and to make our bodies servants of the will of God. Then he goes on to say the next character trait, perseverance, enables us to persist in our pursuit of godly character even when we suffer for doing so, end quote. I thought that was well put. Perseverance. In the original language, it has the idea of patiently and courageously enduring some extreme trial with a view toward future glory. In Hebrews 12, too, we have a great example of that. Where we're told to fix our eyes on Jesus, the author and perfecter of faith, who for the joy set before him endured the cross. And there's the same word in the original language as perseverance, hupomone. He endured the cross, despising the shame and has sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. You see, friends, perseverance describes the kind of Christian who is confident in the purposes of a sovereign God and endures adversity with a sense of calm assurance, knowing that God has ordained his or her afflictions for his or her glory or for God's glory and his or her ultimate good. That's the type of Christian that perseveres. And when you think about it, the worst thing that can happen to us in some trial is death. And that puts us instantly in paradise. You see, for the Christian that perseveres, they see the invisible through the eyes of faith. Their gaze sees through and beyond the temporal fog of trials and tribulations. And they look into the eternal, knowing that God is up to something. You see... They do not look for bypath meadow like Christian and hopeful did, seeking some easier way. They do not look for some way to compromise their faith so that they won't have to suffer so much. They don't look for a way to cower and to hide. Therefore, they do not succumb to doubting castle. They will echo the words of the Apostle Paul who endured enormous suffering when he said in 2 Corinthians 4.16 therefore we do not lose heart 
though our outer man is decaying, yet our inner man is being renewed day by day. For momentary, light affliction is producing for us an eternal weight of glory, far beyond all comparison. While we look not at the things which are seen, but at the things which are not seen. For the things which are seen are temporal, but the things which are not seen are eternal. I ask you to ask yourself, are you one who perseveres in confident faith? When the storms of life gather round you. Or do you find yourself angrily clenching your fist. And shaking it in God's face demanding some answer. And ultimately allow yourself to be uprooted like some, some spindly tree. That really has no depth of doctrinal root. And has no strength of spiritual limb. And yet another virtue must be added to our pursuit of character that will result in the assurance of our faith. He says, and in your perseverance, godliness. Here we, we read of a reverence for God. Godliness. A reverence for God that results in practical Christian living. Now, notice he doesn't say that you need to seek religion there are many religious people who are ungodly. They have the religious trappings of someone who knows God. They have a religious veneer. But they do not have the inner spiritual reality of a true Christian. Godliness can be summarized well in Romans 12, verses 1 and 2. We are to present our bodies a living and holy sacrifice, acceptable to God, which is your spiritual service of worship. Do not be conformed to this world. Literally, do not allow the philosophy, the culture of the world in which you live to squeeze you into its mold without you even knowing that it's happening. Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind Transformed, metamorpho, there is a metamorphosis and the true Christian will begin to manifest itself on the outside as your mind is renewed by the truths of the word of God. It will be something that happens to you by the power of the spirit of God. He goes on to say, so that you may prove what the will of God is, that which is good and acceptable and perfect. That is godliness. And in verse 7, he says, and in your godliness, he wants us to add something else, brotherly kindness. And this is simply the compassionate and affectionate love for others, especially other Christians. And this will always be the natural consequence of godliness. This is agape love. This is that self-sacrificing love that demands no reciprocation. This is the love of choice, not necessarily the love of emotion and warm fuzzies. And it includes, my friends, loving those who are hard to love. It even includes loving our enemies. Now, I ask you, is this a character trait that you are pursuing, that you are working on, applying all diligence in your faith? Are you supplying these Glorious virtues. Are you serious enough about it 
that you're willing to get before God in your closet of prayer and cry out and plead with God, Oh, Lord, help me to see the reality of these truths and apply them to my life so that I might not forfeit blessing in my life, but that I might experience the full orb, the full joy of all that you have for me as a believer. I hope that that is the cry of your heart. Oh, God, strengthen me in my walk with you. So we've seen the commitment required and the character revealed. And finally, we notice the consequence rewarded. Verses 8 and 9, he says, For if these qualities are yours and are increasing, in other words, the virtues just examined, they render you neither useless nor unfruitful. Useless means ineffective. It means idle. It means inoperative. And unfruitful means barren, something that is unproductive. Does that describe your Christian life? Are you useless and unfruitful in the true knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ? In other words, you do not enjoy the subjective joy of knowing Christ and walking with Him. What a tragedy if you truly know Him as a Christian. He says, for he who lacks these qualities is blind or short-sighted, having forgotten his purification from his former sins. In other words, his point is those who are not increasing in these virtues are not able to even see the glorious realities of their salvation. All that God has done for them. They've somehow lost sight of that. Having forgotten, he says, his purification from his former sins. They've lost sight of all that God has done for them. And as they honestly look at their life, they do not see spiritual growth. There's really no zeal, no commitment to be obedient. These virtues are not increasing in their life. It's not even a priority. And so as a result, their spiritual life is useless. It's ineffective. And they're unfruitful. They're not bearing any spiritual fruit. And as a result, and here's the tragedy of it all, they do not experience the real joy of salvation. And inevitably what will happen is these people will fall back into the same old life-dominating sins from which they have been delivered. They've been released from the bondage of those things and they'll fall right back into them. And they'll have no real confidence that they're even saved. Friends, it is so easy, isn't it, to somehow allow ourselves to get so caught up in living, to get so caught up in our jobs and in our families and in our uh, uh, recreational activities that we forget this thing called the Christian life, that we forget our salvation, that we somehow lose sight of the inconceivable gift of grace and all that that means. But when we make it a priority to supply these Christ-like virtues to our faith, when we devote ourselves to personal righteousness then we will, we will never be useless, we will never be unfruitful, nor we, will we suffer from a case of spiritual amnesia, having forgotten our purification from former sins. In other words, we'll have a sense of assurance that we have been saved. And notice in verse 10, Therefore, brethren, be all the more diligent. In other words, there's a sense of urgency here to make certain about his calling. And choosing you, yet another reminder of our unconditional sovereign election. 
and the subsequent call or drawing of God upon us to himself. He says, for as long as you practice these things, you will never stumble. How sad to see Christians falling headlong into doubt and discouragement, fearing that they've either lost their salvation or maybe that they never even really possessed it when maybe, in fact, they have. How thankful that we we can be that God desires that we experience the joy of our salvation. Ah, and the skeptic will say, ah, you're teaching that we must earn our salvation. No, 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 no. You see, friends, righteous living never earns salvation. It only proves it. Spurgeon spoke to this, and I quote, No man, let me repeat, has any right to believe himself called unless his life be in the main consistent with his vocation, and he walk worthy of that whereunto he is called. Out upon an election that lets you live in sin. Away with it, away with it. He goes on to say that was never the design of God's word, and it never was the doctrine of Calvinists either. Though we have been lied against and our teachings perverted, we have always stood by this, that good works, though they do not procure nor in any degree merit salvation, yet are the necessary evidences of salvation. And unless they be in men, the soul is still dead, uncalled and unrenewed. Spurgeon went on to say, the nearer you live to Christ, the more you imitate him the more your life is conformed to Him and the more simply you hang upon Him by faith, the more certain you may be of your election in Christ and of your calling by His Holy Spirit. May the Holy One of Israel give you the sweet assurance of grace by affording you tokens for good in the graces which He enables you to manifest. So friends, this is the consequence of being all the more diligent about our Christian life Supplying these virtues to our life to make certain, as he says in verse 10, about his calling and choosing you for as long as you practice these things, you will never stumble. For in this way, the entrance into the eternal kingdom of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, will be abundantly supplied to you. Friends, herein is the ultimate reward, the ultimate benefit of passionately committing yourselves to the virtues that we have been examining this morning, that someday the glorious blessings of heaven will be showered upon us. May we all rededicate ourselves to these ends this morning and experience the assurance of our salvation and the joy of life eternal as we anticipate the glories of heaven in the life to come. Let's pray together. Father, I thank you that it is your desire that we enjoy and experience assurance of salvation. And I pray that we will all dedicate ourselves to these ends. And Lord, I would pray again, if there be one within the sound of my voice that does not know you as Savior, Lord, will you convict them with the reality of their sinfulness and the consequences of it, the severity of it, And Lord, may may today be the day that they repent and be saved and experience that glorious miracle of the new birth in Christ. 
take these truths and apply them to our hearts, I ask in Jesus' name and for His sake. Amen. We pray you've been edified by this presentation. You've been listening to pastor, Bible teacher, and author David Harrell. For more information or to order additional tapes or CDs of Pastor Harold's messages, please visit olivetreeresources.org.